0: It happened once before. Some muggers followed my wife and daughter home from the market. It's about to happen again. The police there got a very good description of the muggers, too. But it didn't do any good. We do what we can. And so does he. Is this your daughter, Mr. Kersey? Mr. Kersey? Is that Carol? When murder and rape are the crimes, Bronson is the only punishment. Charles Bronson, Death Wish 2. There's something else you should know, sir. Paul Cursey now lives in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. Now you tell me there's a vigilante out there. You believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Well, you're gonna meet him. He killed nine people in New York City four years ago. <laughs> the people he killed were muggers. He became a hero. What did he look like? He was, uh, he was a very good citizen, that's what he was. That guy saved our lives, Damn it! Where the hell were you guys, giving out parking tickets? When violence rules the city, when the police can't stop it, ah! one man will, his way. What's up? Bronson. Goodbye. Death Wish 2. He's doing it for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the debut episode of the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast. I'm your host Scott White. Hopefully you remember me from the Dan Aykroyd podcast. Make sure you're still listening to that one as well. But this is a new one focusing on the project's From Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson. From one podcast to the other, one project from Burt Reynolds, one from Charles Bronson. Simple as that. And what are we going to kick this podcast off with? Death Wish 2. From 1982, starring Charles Bronson, Jill Ireland, and Vincent Gardena. Vincent Gardena is the only person besides Charles Bronson returning from the original Death Wish. We have this movie open up. It's the skylines of Los Angeles. The first one taking place in New York, this one taking place in Los Angeles. And we have uh, the uh, L.A. skyline under the credits. And then we hear this uh, radio show come on, and it's about the alarming rise in violence. This movie, it's really a, I don't want to say right wing, but there—but the right wing is associated uh, with guns and gun rights. This movie is pitting the right for a person to defend themselves against rehabilitation. And it's really coming down on the side of, you can't rehabilitate, so we have to wipe criminals off the face of the earth. It's, it's really, really heavy-handed in this movie. There's no, there's no gray area in it. Rehabilitation does not work at all. Blowing scum away, that's the way to go. And we're going to see that throughout the movie. We're going to see a lot of juxtapositions throughout the movie. And this one was directed by uh, Michael Winner. And Michael Winner directed Death Wish 1, 2, and 3. There were five Death Wish movies all together, and he directed the first three. We cut to... Uh, Charles Bronson's house, he's talking to his uh, housekeeper, she's uh, fixing dinner, Uh, he's waiting for Jill Ireland to pick him up. So in this movie, Charles Bronson and Jill Ireland are a couple, and the reason she's picking him up is they are visiting his daughter, who in the first movie was attacked and raped. We don't know what happened to her husband in this movie because they were still together in the original Death Wish, but in this one, it's just his daughter. The, the, the son-in-law is gone. He's never addressed. And Jill Ireland picks up Charles Bronson. And they drive to this sanitarium where his daughter has been. Now, in this movie, there's a lot of time discrepancy. This happened here. This happened this. This happened then. None of it really matches up. Because Charles Bronson said his daughter has been in the sanitarium for two years. Well, the original Death Wish took place in 1974, and this is 1982 in this movie. So if if we're in actual time, it was eight years. So has she just been in this sanitarium for two years? Has she been in a bunch of sanitariums for two years? Is this movie taking place two years after the original? Not made clear with the timeline. Uh, Not made clear at all. Apparently, this is one of those sanitariums where people can come and go because Jill Ireland and Charles Bronson takes his daughter out. Sort of a street fair kind of deal. You hear mariachi music in the background, and there's tables set up, and people are selling things, and they're browsing, and it seems like they're having a nice time. And Charles Bronson goes off to buy them some ice cream, and that's when we run into the street gang. There are five of them in the street gang, And they, for some reason, they pick out Charles Bronson to mug him or to rob him. And I will say, okay, let's go off on one of these. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. In the gang, one of the gang members is Lawrence Fishburne who went on to bigger and better things. Now, the tangent alert that I'm going with is one of the muggers in the first movie was Jeff Goldblum, who went on to bigger and better things. So, if you're cast as a mugger in a Death Wish movie, you're on your way to bigger and better things. All right, we're back. They run into Charles Bronson, and they take his wallet, and they scatter, and Charles Bronson chases one of them. And he chases them down to an alley... And um, the guy pulls a knife on him, and him and Charles Bronson go at it for a little while. Charles Bronson gets the knife away from him, kicks his ass, throws the knife over over the fence and leaves. I don't know. I guess that's what you would do in that situation. I don't know what you would do in that situation. You can't. He doesn't question him. He doesn't drag him. I Well, okay, I understand that. He's there with his girlfriend, his and his daughter, and he doesn't want to cause his daughter any more emotional pain, so now I can actually see why he was doing that, it's coming to me now, I may be slow, but I'll eventually get there, doesn't tell him what happened, says he forgot his wallet, so they all three go off to buy ice cream, then we cut to a boat, they're gonna go sailing, I don't know who this guy is, this is never addressed who this guy with the boat is, But the daughter goes up on the boat and Charles Bronson and Jill Ireland have this little conversation about what happened and he really doesn't want to talk about it. And Jill Ireland has to leave because she has to interview a senator because she is a reporter that works for the radio station that Charles Bronson is uh, remodeling because he is an architect. So he is still an architect in this movie. I'm guessing that's how they met at the radio station. And they go out on the boat, and we see a montage of Charles Bronson and his daughter on the boat. Uh, then we cut to Charles Bronson's house, and the gang has used his ID to find his address. And once again, I'm thinking, I don't know. What do you think of that? Ask yourself that question. If somebody stole your wallet, would the first thing you think of, they're going to come to my house? Because they have your address. They do. I don't know what I honestly don't know what I would have done in that situation if somebody stole my wallet. Because uh, the reason that they're here is because Charles Bronson beat up that one punk, and the one punk wants revenge on Charles Bronson. Ask yourself, what would you do? W- would you call the cops because his hu- his house ke- because his housekeeper is there, and he doesn't even call the Warner? It's he's been through this before, so he should know the steps that some street punks take Uh, i don't know maybe i'm reading too much into it but this needs to happen i know the reason it doesn't happen is we need the movie to get going and this is what is going to kick the movie uh into gear what happens next the street gang goes to his house there's a really really comical scene i don't know if you've ever seen the movie but they're casing the house they realize that somebody is home so they're going to use a, I have a package ruse to get her to open the door. And they all came up in this van. And Lawrence Fishburne opens the van door and it is completely empty except for this one crowbar sitting in the middle of the van. That scene just made me laugh. It was, it was very, very comical the way it was shot. Well, we cut to the inside and the maid is still preparing dinner uh, for Charles Bronson and the family. And they bust in. There is a very, very this is where a very, very graphic rape scene happens. I know you know they're they're trying to show the violence on the screen. it was it was hard to watch. It was because it, it was it was very, very graphic. It was hard to watch uh, this you actually that, the, the poor woman, I don't know her name, I probably should have looked it up, but the woman who's playing the um, the housekeeper. Uh, did a did a good job acting acting in this scene, but it's a, it's a graphic rape uh, and like I said, Michael Winner directed Death Wish one, two, and three, and in Death Wish one, two, and three, there are all graphic rape scenes in all three of those movies. Four and five, the ones he did not direct, no rape scene. Coincidence? I don't know. This is just to put in the audience's mind how bad the street gang is. It's just to it's just to twist it in their mind. Charles Bronson and his daughter come home. They walk in and the street gang attack him and Charles Bronson tries to take him down but they hit him in the back with the crowbar and while they're doing this uh, the housekeeper tries to use the phone and they just crack her in the skull with the crowbar and kill her. Now they're panicked. They've killed somebody. It was fine when they were raping but killing they freak out and they grab Charles Bronson's daughter and take her with them because they say she can identify us but so can charles bronson he can identify you he saw them just as much as she did and he's unconscious on the floor kill him or take him with you whatever you're going to do but you don't leave him at that point there's no impending trouble the cops are not on their way Nobody has seen them. Nobody has heard anything. So they do have time. They could have taken care of Charles Bronson and not left him there to eventually wake up and ID them. But they don't because the movie has to happen. The movie has to happen. They grab his daughter and they run out. While that was happening, we cut to Jill Ireland and the senator that she was interviewing. And he's a very anti-death penalty He actually says this about the death penalty. There is only one truth about the use of the death penalty. Why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing is wrong? Thank you, Senator. That was Senator Robert McClain, and this has been News Desk, brought to you by KBC Los Angeles. I'm Jerry Nichols. Very heavy-handed in this movie, one side and another. How can we condone killing people who kill while somebody is, while we see somebody killing somebody? We cut to the gang's hideout, and they're all just standing around with Charles Bronson's daughter uh, lying in the middle, talking about what to do. Do we kill her? Well, she saw us. She can identify us. And the funny part is, in this background, there are these huge PAPS Blue Ribbon signs on the wall. We have another rape scene. One of the punks rapes Charles Bronson's daughter in front of the PAPS Blue Ribbon sign. And I don't know if PAPS Blue Ribbon gave them permission or they just didn't know, but I would not want my product associated with rape which is what happens in this scene. I mean, and these are these are huge paps blue ribbon sign. Jill Ireland comes home to find Charles Bronson unconscious on the floor, to find the housekeeper dead. We cut back to the hideout and after they get done raping Charles Bronson's daughter, she makes a break for it. She jumps out a window and impales herself on a fence. Oh. And uh, the gang once again freaks out and runs away. We're back at Charles Bronson's place. The cops are there. They're interviewing him. Maybe this is me after watching tons and tons of forensic files. But they never consider Charles Bronson a suspect. He, they're taking his word that he was knocked unconscious while the gang did this. And for what I've learned from a lot of forensic files and a lot of reality uh, TV shows is a lot of people stage things where it makes it look like other people did it while they committed the murder. Maybe this was not you know, typical at the time, but just thinking of it through 2020 eyes, seeing that. They do not once uh, think that Charles Bronson had—he doesn't, He doesn't. He doesn't. But they do not once think that, which is not how the police think today. Anyway, I digress. And the cops keep asking him for descriptions of the gang, and Charles Bronson has given pretty vague descriptions. So this is the first point where we realize that he's keeping a little bit back. He's not letting everybody know what he knows because he may have to do what he did in the first movie. So this is the first inkling of that. The first inkling of okay, I may have to I may have to go go back on the streets. And the chief of police talks to Charles Bronson and says, "This is not the first time this has happened to you." So they they recap death wish one with his family uh being attacked by muggers so we get a nice little recap from the chief of police then he says we have information about your daughter and we cut to the morgue they pull the sheet back and it's his daughter here's the thing when jill ireland walked in the door and saw the housekeeper dead she freaked out she you know She freaked out. She screamed. She covered her mouth. She sees Charles Bronson's daughter lying on a slab. There was absolutely nothing, nothing on her face. She made no emotional inkling at all. I thought that was weird direction, that she'd freak out for a housekeeper, but not freak out for the daughter. Now we cut to the funeral, and at this point, it's basically this movie is a beat-for-beat shot of Death Wish 1. The muggers come in, kill, they rape. We go to the morgue, we go to the funeral. It's, it's just a, it's a, it's a more graphic retelling of Death Wish one up to this point. And after the funeral, uh, Charles Bronson's boss says he has a cabin for him. Just go up there and unwind, to get his mind off of things, which he does. He doesn't take Jill Ireland. Jill Ireland, in this movie, if she was a real girlfriend in real life. She put up with a lot during this without asking a lot of questions up until a point. She's a very, very understanding person. She's a very, very understanding uh, person in Charles Bronson's life in this movie. Uh, She does a nice job of that. They make her naive, uh, more naive than I think she should be. You know, she's a seasoned reporter that uh, just so certain things can happen. Bronson goes off to the cabin, We see him chopping wood. When this movie was made, Charles Bronson was 61. And he looks great for 61 in this movie. I believe him as a vigilante in this movie at 61. He can pull it off. We cut back to the radio station. Now, this is something about the movie. The movie is a slow burn. It takes a while for us to get into the revenge part of the movie. Much like Death Wish 1, but in Death Wish 1, he wasn't a vigilante yet. He was still a regular person, quote-unquote regular person. And it takes a lot of things and a lot of people to put into his mind that he's a vigilante. So we reach this point, he's already become a vigilante. Maybe the slow burn is he doesn't want to go back to the ways that he was. I think we could have gotten into the, the chase, the vigilante chase, quicker but it's a slow burn and during the slow burn we have these scenes where charles bronson is working as an architect at the radio station and there's this really bland scenes where he's talking about the building about square feet and wood and concrete is it to lend credibility that he is an architect maybe this throws suspicion off him to me it was it was dull. To me, we didn't need it. We could, have, we could have had more shots of him on the prowl. We've already set up in the first movie that he's an architect. We already know that he can do this. Is it filler? Is it a slow burn? Whatever it is, I didn't care for that. And when he gets back, he goes right to work. He doesn't even tell Jill Ireland, his girlfriend, that he is back. So this goes back to what I said before about her being very, very understanding. You get back in town, the first thing you do is you go to your girlfriend, the one who was there for you. But he went to work. She had to find out that he was there through people in the building. The police want him to look at more pictures. He says, no, it won't do any good. Because now in his head, now he's he's in vigilante mode. Now he's the one that's going to take the law into his own hands. He has a gun hidden in his house. He takes it, and he takes the gun to downtown L.A., and we see him set up he goes into this old salvation army and he buys these i want to say like bland clothes where he cuz he goes downtown he's in a suit and tie he he stands out like a sore thumb he buys these work pants and work shirt and a black coat and a black hat he actually looks really cool charles bronson looks really cool when he when he's on the streets of la hunting these people down he rents a room downtown Uh, A really, a really sleazy, a really dirty room. That's his headquarters while he's downtown, I take it. But the thing is, he's driving this really, really nice car. That's going to make him stand out. That doesn't make sense. A lot of things he does, does make sense. But now he's, and it's the typical LA thing. Wherever he drives, he can always find a parking spot. You're telling me that car isn't going to stand out. That nice car isn't going to get broken into while he's downtown. But it never does. He needs it to get back and forth. Well, he doesn't, and we'll get into that as well. In, in downtown L.A., the background is a lot of churches. There's a lot of churches. There's a lot of missions. So while they set the background, there's actually a pimp beating up a hooker in front of a church. So we hear the sermon in the background, but we see the reality in the foreground. And this is through the entire movie. While he's, You're always hearing these religious speeches while he's downtown, while he's hunting these vigilantes. You're always hearing that. My opinion is, I think they're putting that in there, is that you can talk, you know, you can have the words, you can talk, but that doesn't do anything. Talking doesn't do anything. Uh, Praying doesn't do anything. You have to go out and do what needs to be done yourself. Just my opinion. I think that's... That's the juxtaposition of this, where you see all the violence in the foreground and you see all the religion in the background. Our next scene, he's back in his own apartment. Jill Ireland walks in. She surprises him. This is another thing in these movies that bother me, is he's working all day and he's out all night. When does he sleep? Is he getting only two or three hours of sleep? He's doing this every night, working all day. He's out all night. How long can the human body function like that? And it's not just in this movie. I see this in a ton of movies where a person is operating on a level they shouldn't be operating on, on the amount of sleep, and the amount of rest that they're not getting. But we go with it. Suspension of disbelief. He has the locks changed on the house. And I thought, well, that's to keep Jill Ireland from coming back in and coming here in the middle of the night and finding out that he's not home. Okay, that's sort of a smart idea. He probably should have had the locks changed the minute this all happened, but he didn't. Because it's not like they're coming. He, I don't think he thinks they're coming back. He's back on the street, and now we see her calling, and he's not answering the phone. But she's still not getting suspicious. And at this point, it's like you got to start being suspicious. He's He's blowing you off. He's not answering the phone. Something's up. Now, his daughter just died, Now they wouldn't jump to the conclusion that he's killing muggers, but some, is he drinking? Is he suicidal? Obviously, something is not right. Maybe a little investigation from the investigative reporter. Well, we're back on the street, and he sees one of them. He finally finds one of the gang, and he follows him into this abandoned building. There's a drug deal going on. And this was, there were a ton of live rats in this shot. And I give all the actors credit. They were acting with live, squeaking rats. And the scene is, is very, very quiet, except for the squeaking rats. And I thought the squeaking rats in the background gave this scene a sort of grungy, icky feel, which I really thought enhanced the scene. Charles Bronson interrupts this drug deal, and he shoots one of the guys who pulls a gun on him. But he lets the other two guys in the drug deal go. So he's not... He's not gone back to full blown vigilanteism yet because he lets these two guys go. And he just keeps the guy that attacked him and his family. And this guy is wearing a, a cross on his neck. And Charles Bronson says this You and you out, not you. You believe in Jesus. Well, you're gonna meet him. And then he blows him away. Back to his room downtown, and he tapes his gun under the under a bureau. And then he goes, he drives home. Once again, his car. How is he explaining his car? Where is he parking his car downtown? Ugh. Uh, Jill Ireland actually calls him again, and they set up a date. I think Charles Bronson finally realizes that he has to have some semblance of uh, being normal, or else she is going to start asking questions. So he's not an obsessed killer in this movie. I thought that was nice. He's not he's not driven with tunnel vision. He wants to get the job done, but he knows he has to do certain things to make sure that people aren't catching on, that it's him. I think that finally occurred to him in the movie. Another thing, LA is another character in this movie, the grimy LA streets of the early eighties. Although not as uh, picturesque as the grimy streets of uh, New York in the late seventies and early eighties, it still has an effect on you seeing how it used to be, uh, Just all how run down and how scary it used to be in the 80s. We have a voiceover where Charles Bronson is driving in the car downtown. And it's a radio. Once again, it's the lefties, how we can uh, put uh, criminals into farms and steer them away from crime. And Charles Bronson says something snarky to that. So we're really playing up the fact that a lot of people think crime can be uh, taken out of a person. While Charles Bronson is blowing people away. Nothing subtle about this movie at all, which I like. It's sometimes you like something being subtle, sometimes you don't. And this one is just in your face gun violence. Which is what the movie was promoted to be and what and that's what the movie delivers. Charles Bronson is back into his crappy hotel room downtown and he turns the light on with the lamp so he's not using any fingerprints. But, once again, being from 2020, seeing all those forensic files, he has taped his gun under a bureau, and he takes the gun off with no gloves on, and he peels the tape away. And I know from watching these TV shows that duct tape is a great source to get fingerprints. Maybe not known in 1992, but knowing that now, I'm just like, No, don't. You're, you're, they're going to get your fingerprints from the tape. Which they never do, but watching an 82 movie through 2020 eyes. Charles Bronson is walking in the street and he hears a scream and he follows the scream down into this parking garage and there's this man and this woman getting mugged and the man is getting beaten up and the woman is getting taken into a van to be raped so this is our third rape scene in a movie one of the people is one of the muggers that attacked Bronson and his family and this and Bronson opened fires. And here's the deal. He shoots him in the back. He doesn't care. There's no honor with this. He shoots him in the back because he has the advantage and he takes care of the advantage. The one that attacks his family, he tries to run away and Charles Bronson shoots him in the back of the leg and he limps out. You see this trail of blood. So Bronson is following this trail of blood across the street. He chases him across the street into this building. And this building is full of crates, and it has a forklift, and the mugger gets on a forklift. And we'll go off on one of these. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. In this scene, the mugger uses a forklift to try to get the upper hand on Bronson. In Death Wish 5, Charles Bronson uses a forklift to get the best of the people after him. So many, many years later, Bronson is behind the wheel of the forklift. Well, it doesn't work, and Charles Bronson shoots him and uh, walks away. The cops show up to help the couple, and they won't help him. They feel that Charles Bronson is is a great citizen, and they're mad at the cops for not being there to help. The couple threatens the cops that they will give the press a hell of a statement if they don't allow the medics to take them to the hospital. Well, at this point, the chief of police figures out that... You know what we got here, don't you? A goddamn vigilante. And we cut to the police commissioner's office, and they're discussing it about the vigilante, and then they bring up that New York had a vigilante five years ago. Once again, the timeline is weird. It happened eight years ago in real time, but in the movie, they said five years ago, and the woman was in the sanitarium two years. The whole back timeline doesn't match up, but the governor of New York says contact New York and find out how they dealt with this vigilante, And and when they contact New York, The governor of New York and the DA of New York bring in Vincent Gardena. Gardena. Jesus. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Vincent Gardena. And they spell it out to him. It's like, Kersey is in L.A. Vigilante crimes are happening in L.A. If it's Kersey, you go to L.A. and you take care of him one way or another. You either talk him out of it or you kill him. It's just like that because they know all their jobs are on the line. If it finds out that they had the vigilante and they let him go, all hell is going to break loose. So Vincent Gardena is there to take care of the problem. And now Vincent is... He meets up with an old newspaper buddy and he has this stack of clippings on Charles Bronson. And the top clipping is how his daughter and his housekeeper were killed by muggers. Now here's the deal. Vincent Gardena said that he had been keeping tabs on Charles Bronson. So he's been keeping tabs on Charles Bronson, but he didn't know that this happened? Did he just stop keeping tabs on him? I figured this would be a big deal if you were keeping tabs on somebody. Maybe it happened too quickly. Maybe he didn't have time to find it out, but I don't know. If you're keeping tabs on somebody, or if you got a newspaper buddy, maybe put it in his ear. If something happens where this guy's name pops up, let me know. He finds out that Bronson's family was killed and raped by muggers and now he knows that it's him he meets with the police chief of LA and he gives him you know the runaround. he doesn't let him know that he knows that it's Charles Bronson and the police chief knows that uh something's up Vincent Gardena breaks into Jill Ireland's apartment because he knows about Jill Ireland but he doesn't know about the anyway I'm not gonna yeah (laughs) he breaks into Jill Ireland's apartment and brings her up to date on what happened to Charles Bronson in New York. So now, if you've never seen Death Wish, you know what's going on with the previous exposition dump and this one. And he says it was four years ago. Once again, another different year. There. Ah, uh, okay. We've established that the, the the weird time in this. I'm not going to go over it again. He's using her. He's using Jill Ireland to get him to stop killing. I don't think he wants to kill Charles Bronson, but I think he would if he had to. We cut to Charles Bronson's apartment. She's trying to use her key. She can't get in. Like, okay, that's why he changed the lock, so she can't come in and find anything. And he just happens to be there. There's a lot of serendipity in this movie where people show up just at the moment they need to show up. It happens quite a bit. Jill Ireland finally confronts him. Charles Bronson says that the police chief, Vincent Gardena, is wacky. And she buys it. I don't, and from, I think she really does buy it. I don't think she thinks that Charles Bronson is hiding anything at this point. She really believes that he is not killing muggers and he really, she really believes that this police chief from New York is off his rocker. And we cut outside and uh, Vincent Gardina is spying on them. So he's doing his job. And then the next day they're driving to work and Charles Bronson gives her a key to the house. Well, I'm like, well, why did you change the locks if you're just going to give her? I don't know the scene. So, the scene of changing the lock was irrelevant, where he calls and makes a lock change. It's irrelevant. It doesn't. We see that one scene where she's trying to get in, but he's right there. So, it was just a needless scene because he just gives her a key. Now she can get in the house at any time. A lot of scenes like that in this. A lot of why scenes in this movie. Let's just get more to. To the meat and and taters of this movie. Vincent uh, Gardena calls his friend at the paper and tells him to park his car out front because he knows that Charles Bronson knows that he's in town. So he knows that Charles Bronson is probably going to be on the lookout for his car. And Charles Bronson is on the lookout for his car. And he sees his car and he slips out the back. And Vincent Gardena follows him. He flags down because Charles Bronson gets on a bus. Now here's the thing. Why didn't he do this before? He gets on a bus and he takes a bus downtown to get to where he needs to be. Why didn't he do that from the beginning? Why is he driving his car? If you had, if you could take a bus downtown and not have anybody see your car, that's what you want to do. Anyway, he gets downtown. He changes into his vigilante clothes. All this is happening. Vincent Gardena is following him the whole time. And uh, Charles Bronson comes into this park and he sees the last three punks and he follows them down to the bottom of a hill. There's some sort of historical monument down there. They're making a, uh, they're buying guns. They're buying guns with coke. So Charles Bronson is down there spying on them and Vincent Gardina is down there spying on Charles Bronson and also spying on the, on the punks. So it's a triple, double, triple, spy on, double cross. Following me? Well, Vincent Gardena spots a guy in the tree. So whoever's set up this drug deal set up a set up a guy in a tree with a rifle. And Vincent Gardena spots him and yells to Charles Bronson to look out. And now the gunfire starts. Everybody starts firing bullets. Vincent Gardena starts firing. Charles Bronson starts firing. The guy in the tree starts firing. All the punks start firing. A big, big gun battle. And during all this, Vincent Gardena gets shot. And Charles Bronson takes out all the punks but one, and he runs away. I found it during because so Charles Bronson takes care of all the other guys involved and a couple other people. But during this, they're selling guns. They have a trunk full of guns, and and during this gun battle, they run out of bullets. There's a bunch of guns. Just grab another gun from the car. They're in there. Charles Bronson walks over to Vincent Gardena. Charles Bronson doesn't say a lot in this movie, but he does say this. I'll be damned, you. You stuck your neck out for me? It was you or them. (laughs) Did you get them all? One of them got away. Get the motherfucker for me. Oh Father What of Heaven. Right here. There's not a lot of profanity in this movie, but I thought that was a nice little thing where he tells them to get the motherfuckers and then goes right into the Lord's Prayer and dies. I thought that was nice. We cut to the aftermath where the police are interrogating the one sole survivor. One of the punks uh, didn't die. He has a a bullet wound in his stomach and this cop is just pushing on this bullet wound, trying to get him to talk. And he gives the name Charles Wilson. And that was the name of the punk that got away. And right after that, he dies. Uh, We go back to the radio station. And once again, we have another one of these scenes where they're discussing architecture while walking through the, radio station through people talking charles bronson finds out uh, the name of the guy that got away and he also found out that the police are closing in on him and the reason that the radio station knows that is they have a police monitor and they're monitoring the police monitor charles bronson asks if he can have one they asked they just happen to have one lying around and he gives it to him And he takes it to his hotel room downtown, and he just listens to it, and he finds out that they're all closing in on this guy uh, in this uh, old apartment building. So Charles Bronson drives down there, and uh, he knows all the SWAT team is around. And at this point, is he really expecting to get away? I don't know. How would you get away if you knew that the entire police force was there closing in on this guy? Could you get away? He manages, he goes to the building across the street. He jumps onto the roof of the apartment building. He gets down there, and he tries to kill this guy before the SWAT team can get him. And he busts in the door, and this guy had two women with him, and he throws this woman at him, and he slices Charles Bronson's arm with a knife. And he goes running out, and this guy is a beast. And he takes about half the police force down with him before before they're able to tackle him and arrest him. Charles Bronson is back in his room. He's treating his his arm wound, his stab wound. He drives home, and when he drives home, the wound on his arm starts to open up again. And this is where Jill Ireland walks in, with a key. If you didn't give her the key, you wouldn't have this problem. <clears throat> uh, okay, I'm getting bogged down on the little things. <laughs> when you're young and you watch a movie like this, it's just, hey, bang, 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 shoot him up. When you're older and you've, Watched a ton of movies in your lifetime. Little things like this tend to stick out and tend to bug you. He convinces Jill Ireland that they need to go out for dinner. She goes home, and he's able to just let his arm bleed in peace because he's there alone. We cut to the courtroom. The very liberal judge doesn't send this guy to jail, this mugger, because he was on PCP. He was out of his mind. So now he gets to go to a state hospital. Once again, pounding home the point we got to be soft on criminals. We cut to Jill Ireland and Charles Bronson in robes like they've just spent the night together. Okay, you've just spent the night with this man. How did you not see the big gaping knife wound on his arm? How did you not see that? How did you not question that? Ah! Jill Ireland is talking to a doctor, a doctor that works at the hospital where this uh, punk is being held. Once again, a lot of serendipity in this movie. Charles Bronson says he wants to meet the doctor. And they go to the hospital and Charles Bronson slips away and he grabs a doctor's ID. And he's going to use that later to get into the hospital. He takes that ID home and he wipes everything out and he makes copies of it. And he puts a fake name and his picture on it. So now he has a badge. But while he's doing this, He messes up once and he crumbles up a piece of paper and he throws it at the waste can and it misses and it falls on the floor. That's going to be important later. We cut to a nice fancy restaurant. Charles Bronson proposes to Jill Ireland. What they're going to do is they're going to fly to Acapulco and get married. I'm guessing Charles Bronson has it in his head. I'm going to kill this last guy and then I am done. My job is done. We cut to the hospital. Charles Bronson, he has his hospital garb. He has his name badge. He finds out where this uh, punk is being held. It's in a security part of this hospital. He's behind this uh, gate that you need a code to get in. And the orderly there, he starts talking. He talks his way past the orderly to get into this room, to get into this wing of the hospital. And they go into this room, and in the back part of the room, Charles Bronson asks, what's that thing? And he goes, that's our electroshock machine. But since you guys are here to uh, be soft on criminals, we don't use the electroshock machine anymore. And the orderly brings this punk into this room with Bronson and Bronson says, I won't need you. You can go. And they start to battle and Bronson is just going to shoot him, but he gets his gun kicked away. And this guy has a shank in his shoe. Very poor security at this hospital. People walking in with guns. People are walking around with shanks. Very, very poor security. And they're battling it out, and Bronson is getting stabbed in the shoulder with the shank. He's bleeding all over the place, and this guy goes to punch him. And when he punches him, he puts his hand through the shock machine, and Bronson turns it on and electrocutes him right there in that room. He turns it off, the guy falls to the floor dead. He's done it. Charles Bronson has killed all of the punks that uh, affected his family. And he's sitting there and he's bleeding from the shoulder and he looks up and the orderly is there. And he just sits down. He figures, this is it. This is what happens. He raped and killed my daughter. I read about it. I'll give you three minutes till I ring the alarm. You're wasting time. To open the door, you punch out, uh... 3600? That's right. I will say, he doesn't give him three minutes. That was a lot less than three minutes when he rang the bell. We cut to Charles Bronson. He drives back to his hotel downtown. He fixes the wound on his shoulder. A bunch of stab wounds. Once again, you're going on your honeymoon. How are you going to explain all the stab wounds in your shoulder? I'm going to, okay. Let's just, uh. Now we see Jill Ireland arriving at Bronson's place. Bronson is running late. He He's, he's caught in traffic. He can't get to her. While she's at his place, she turns on the radio and it's reported that this punk uh, was killed in this hospital. Now, this is a weird scene. She sees the piece of paper on the floor. Now, if you saw a piece of paper on the floor next to a wastebasket, what would you do? You'd pick it up and you'd put it in the wastebasket. When she hears this news that this guy was killed in the hospital... Something snaps in her head, and she opens up the crinkled piece of paper and sees that it's a hospital badge that he tried to forge, and the one that he messed up. How would you make that connection? If you saw a piece of garbage on the floor, and and, some, and then you heard a report, oh, um, somebody killed somebody in your family, would you immediately open up that piece? Uh, well, okay, maybe I'm speaking... She has all this back information about him being a vigilante. Maybe that's why she did it. It just seemed weird to me that that newscast would instinctively have her open up that piece of paper when most people would just pick it up or maybe just pick it up and put it in the wastebasket and see. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. (laughs) Maybe the little things are getting to me in this movie. Well, she sees that it's a badge. She knows it was Charles Bronson. She takes off her engagement ring and puts it on the badge and she leaves. And Charles Bronson just misses her. And now we're at the end of the movie. She doesn't turn him in. We find out that she has left him. Apparently she has left the radio station. She's gone on to other things. So she knows that he's the vigilante, but she hasn't turned him in. Charles Bronson's boss asks him to come to a party. He says, sure. You know, what else would I be doing? And then the movie ends. Um, actually, before this happens, the radio is playing and we hear about all these muggers and punks being uh, killed in the streets. So there is a vigilante. Okay. Now, so Charles Bronson has gone back to being a vigilante. W- what What happened in New York? They sent this guy to kill him. They didn't kill him. So he's still out there. They're not going to send anybody else. They're not are they too scared to send anybody else? Because Vincent Gardina was the only person. Well he couldn't have been the only person. Because we find out in later movies that there were other people working that night when he was brought in. Send another cop. And another. And this time don't question him. Just kill him. If it's that important to you that he just thought a lot of loopholes, a lot of loose ends in this movie. And the movie is over. What did I think of Death Wish 2? I was going to say Death Wish 3. What did I think of Death Wish 2? It's a it's a a good movie. It's a little slow at parts. It's a slow burn. We have a lot of unnecessary scenes. The soundtrack, I didn't mention the soundtrack is by Jimmy Page. The soundtrack is great. I'm not going to talk too much about it because I may do a separate podcast on that later. Death Wish 2 is a bridge between the original Death Wish and then Death Wishes three, four, and five. Death Wishes. three, four, and five are just ridiculous movies. You watch those movies and there is no fluff in those movies. It is all bang, 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 over the top violence. Death Wish one had a story. So this one is a more violent representation of Death Wish one, but it's not silly and over the top as three, four, and five. So it's a good movie. It's a good Charles Bronson movie. It's a good revenge movie. It's not great. It's not bad. It's good. I'd watch it again. Now, it's not going to be something that I'm going to watch every couple, you know, this single, it might be something I watch every two, three years. I'll pop it in. Maybe do a Death Wish Marathon. And that is it. That is my first episode of the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, please support me on my Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Scott White. And if you want to see anything that I'm working on, please visit my website, scottyblanco.com. And hope you enjoyed this first episode. I enjoyed doing it. And we'll see you next time here on the Burt Reynolds and Charles Bronson podcast. Betty's giving a new building party next Thursday. We'd like you to join us. I'll be there. Are you sure you're free? What else would I be doing?